Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Laura Coates, and this is CNN Tonight. So, for everyone out there wondering which came first the chicken or the egg, or maybe the committee or the DOJ investigation, the answer might soon become increasingly clear. The committee may be flexing its legislative and oversight power to illuminate what led up to and what really happened on January 6th. But the DOJ isn't waiting for the torch to be passed. It appears to be investigating the actions of Donald Trump himself. That's according to the Washington Post tonight. CNN can confirm that key aides to Mike Pence, his former chief of staff, Mark Short, and his lead counsel, Greg Jacob, both have already testified before a federal grand jury. Pretty high up. The Post says that prosecutors asked hours and hours of detailed questions about meetings that Trump himself led. Meetings like the one Jacob described to the January 6th committee. Remember this? Mr. Eastman came in. Um, he said, I'm here to request that you reject the elector. And I said, John, if the vice president did what you were asking him to do, we would lose nine to nothing in the Supreme Court, wouldn't we? Um, And he initially started, well, I think maybe you would lose only seven to two. Um, And after some further discussion, acknowledged, well, yeah, you're right. We would lose nine nothing. Six to two, six and one, half dozen and another, you know. As for his credibility, Jacob's credibility, keep in mind that his version of events was already shown before a federal judge. And that judge's conclusion is it is, quote, more likely than not that President Trump corruptly attempted to obstruct the joint session of Congress on January 6, 2021. And the Post reporting seems to indicate this goes beyond just witness testimony, that the DOJ, back in April, I might add, received phone records of key Trump officials, including former chief of staff Mark Meadows. And CNN's own reporting is that the department has subpoenaed documents from state lawmakers in Arizona and also in Georgia involved in the plan to submit fake pro-Trump electors, a plan that was laid out in emails obtained by The New York Times. In the words of a pro-Trump lawyer, quote, we would just be sending in fake electoral votes to Pence that someone in Congress can make an objection when they start counting votes and start arguing that the fake votes should be counted. Now, a follow-up email suggests alternative votes sounds better than saying fake votes. Now, where have we heard that alternative sounds better than fake before? I'm racking my brain to remember when that might have been. Hmm. Well, the timing of all this reporting comes as we see Merrick Garland doing what he doesn't often do as attorney general, sitting down with a network television journalist on camera. We pursue justice without fear or favor. We intend to hold everyone, anyone, who was criminally responsible for the events surrounding January 6th, 
or any attempt to interfere with the lawful transfer of power from one administration to another accountable. That's what we do. We don't pay any attention to other uh, issues with respect to that. So if Donald Trump were to become a candidate for president again, that would not change your schedule or, or how you move forward or don't move forward? Uh, say again that uh, we will hold accountable anyone who is criminally responsible for attempting to interfere with the transfer, legitimate lawful transfer of power from one administration to the next. He'll get tired of saying just that. Those questions are going to keep coming to him. Well, my guests tonight know the players, and they certainly know the stakes. Olivia Troy worked with Mark Short and Greg Jacob on Mike Pence's staff. Shan Wu is a former federal prosecutor. And Miles Taylor was chief of staff, the Homeland Security Secretary under Trump. Glad to have you all here today. Um, Merrick Garland's probably going to get tired of having to answer that very question. Remember, he just a few days ago was like, listen, Basically, I said what I said. I'll say it louder again, which is kind of weird for him to have had that tone. But it's one that displays that he keeps getting the same question. Do you intend to hold Trump accountable? When these questions are coming, what goes through your mind? Is it too singular and myopic a focus? Will it harm, politically speaking, other aspects of it? What are your thoughts? I think that he really needs to decide if he wants to say something more specific or really just say nothing at all. Because the usual reasons for giving nothing about the, about the uh, investigation don't really apply here. Everybody knows what the issues are. He's not tipping off anybody. He certainly doesn't have to say, we're going to indict him. But he could certainly have said what we just learned today, which is that, of course, we're looking at Trump's behavior. We're asking questions about him. Today's reporting was the first time we heard even questions were being asked about it. I think he could say that. Well, I, I, I've got to say... I think as much as the attorney general is trying to be disciplined about what he's saying, he has tipped his hand. Mm. Maybe not in that most recent interview, but just before that, he said, this is the most important investigation in Justice Department history. It's not the most important investigation if you're looking at Peter Navarro or one of these low-level aides. It's the most important investigation in Justice Department history if you're looking at the president of the United States. Now, up until this point, Merrick Garland has been a sphinx in Washington, D.C. But to the point you just made, we may not know the Sphinx's answers, but we now know the questions he's asking. And those questions are about Donald Trump. And we are now literally within feet of the ex-president of the United States. The people who sat feet away from him, the phones that were within feet of him, they are zeroing in on the ex-president. And I think that much is clear at this point. Is he a Sphinx because he's cutting off his nose to spite his face right now? What is the Sphinx well, analogy? We could take I want to go into we, this in great detail. We will mix my, all I'm visual, the metaphors. And I was thinking, why is he a Sphinx? Is, what's going on? Tell me why he's the Sphinx in Washington, D.C. But, but what, well, it's, everyone's guessing what Merrick Garland's trying to do. But again, I think he's tipped his hand. But, but there's something else that stands out here. And I know we'll talk about Trump 2024 and will he, won't he. But there's something very fascinating about this to me. Before he ran for president, he was basically under investigation, given what was happening with Russia. Once he became, became president, was investigated over Russia and the Ukraine call. You know, after his election, he was investigated for, you know, January 6th and is now. Uh, you know, this is a man who's perpetually under investigation. But this one, looks like it's getting closer to the ex-president than any of those ever did. And yet he's Teflon Don, right? I mean, what you just named, all those things happened before he got millions and millions and millions of votes, right? And so you have to wonder, to politically speaking, does any of this get through? I mean, you were a part of the, you know, you know this very well. Is any of this, you think, resonating with people in the way that, I guess, the committee maybe hopes it will? 
Yeah, I think it is. I think uh, the hearings have been very effective in the way they've approached this. It's been very methodical, and they're hearing from Republicans themselves. That's what really matters here, is these are people who were there until the very end in the Trump administration, who were loyalists, who were who did their jobs diligently. And I think that message is uh, resonating when they come forward and they say, look, this is what Donald Trump did this day. These are the facts. This is what we lived. And it's firsthand testimony. I don't think you can skirt around that. But look, to get back to Garland, Trump went out of his way to politicize the Department of Justice, the FBI, the intelligence community. So, you know, I've, I've got to give some credit to Garland here where he does have to be very careful with this investigation and methodical to make sure that he is reflecting the impartialness that we would traditionally always, you know, want to expect from the Department of Justice, especially in the United States. And so, you know, that's something that I think about. When in I fact, here he is. I want to play for you what he has to say about the reason things are being closer to the vest. I mean, the committee is very public and obviously the court of public opinion wants everything on the table all the time. He says why they have to be much more circumspect. Here he is. We have been moving urgently since the very beginning. We have a huge number of prosecutors and agents working on these cases. It is inevitable in this kind of investigation that there will be speculation about what we are doing, who we are investigating, what our theories are. The reason there is this speculation and uncertainty is that a fundamental tenet of what we do as prosecutors and investigators is to do it outside of the public eye. And of course, that's true. But Olivia, you know Short, right? You know Jacobs. Tell me a little bit about what you think they're testifying to in that grand jury. Look, there's uh, no one more apropos to testify to what they witnessed in the days in the lead up to January 6th, what was going on internally in the White House, what the president was trying to do, what Eastman was trying to do. Um, Look, Greg Jacob and I worked very closely together. He is a man of integrity and he believes very much so in the rule of law and this country. And so I have no doubt that they talked about the amount of pressure placed on the Pence team and on Mike Pence himself. Shannon, why haven't we heard, though, from Mike Pence? I mean, I know they're all the people who are sort of in the line and help people understand, why not the proverbial? Like, why not that person? Well, I think there are two issues there. Politically, which I'm not the expert on. I mean, he probably does not want to go on record. He might keep that as little as possible. No witness wants to go on record. We don't care about that in DOJ. Well... DOJ is going to be slightly concerned with what is his status at this point. He would be tremendously valuable, but they are getting all that information from the people near to him. Uh, as a prosecutor, I think you'd have to make some decisions about Pence first. And his, if I was his lawyer, I would be looking to make sure I had some guarantees that you weren't looking at him as a target or a subject. So that may cause some delays in terms of getting him in front of the grand jury. I'm going to give a harsher assessment. It, it ultimately comes down to a lack of courage. I've just got to say, this was the one issue, following through on the law, was the one place where we've given Pence any credit for showing backbone during this administration. Otherwise, in meetings in the Oval Office, he would stand there and he would smile and he would nod, even when the president wanted to do illegal things. I mean, I've sat in there, like I'm sure Olivia has, when Trump has said things like, I want to get rid of the judges. Let's get rid of the judges and ignore their rulings. And Mike Pence, rather than intervening to say, Mr. President, that would be illegal, that was the same Mike Pence who would stand and nod his head. So I'm not expecting Pence to stand up any further than he has. I do think he did the right thing that day. I don't think that makes him a superhero. Well, we'll see what he ultimately will do, or maybe he's been asked to do already. That's part of this. We just don't know what has been asked of him. But on that day, we know what was asked and what he actually did. But I am like you. I seem to hold my designation of heroism 
much closer to the vest. Consistency over time, I think, has a very big role in all these. Stan Wu, thank you so much. Miles and Olivia, stand by. We're coming back to you as well. The January 6th Select Committee might not have any more hearings planned until September, but that does not stop them from releasing more eye-opening testimony. This time, Donald Trump's acting defense chief testifies just how many troops he was told to have ready on January 6th. And could Trump's hold over the GOP be slipping? New CNN polls suggest more Republicans think it's time to maybe find someone else. The January 6th Select Committee has put out brand new video. It shows Trump's acting defense secretary denying there were orders to have troops ready to protect the Capitol. So I want to be clear here that it, it, since then, in February of 2021, Mark Meadows said on Fox News, Fox News that, quote, even in January, that was a given. As many as 10,000 National Guard troops were told to be on the ready by the secretary of defense. Is there any accuracy to that statement? I'm not, not from my perspective. I was never given any direction or order or due of any plans of, of that nature. Never given any direction or order. And that's testimony given under oath, well, as opposed to this, this moment. I definitely gave the number of 10,000 uh, National Guardsmen. I think you should have... 10,000 of the National Guard ready. Uh, They took that number, from what I understand, they gave it to the people at the Capitol, which is controlled by Pelosi, and I heard they rejected it because they didn't think it looked good. Hmm. Gave that number to the people at the Capitol. I'm going to need some more specifics there. Olivia and Miles are still with us. We're joined also by Alex Burns. He's national political correspondent with the New York Times. I'm glad to have you all here. First of all, we were told no more hearings until September. You've all marked off your calendars. You're waiting with bated breath. You cannot wait for the next one, I understand. But we thought maybe it'd be kind of radio silence till then. This obviously tells you for every statement that might come out, I'm just going to leave this right here for you at the table. What do you make of this decision to do that? Was it trying to undercut the perspective notion that Trump could have a leg to stand on in the public eye? What's this about? Look, I think the committee has been very, very deliberate all the way through about putting out information at a time and in a manner of their choosing to just dominate uh, the news cycle. And yeah, I think to deny Donald Trump a clear lane to make his own case at any point ever, right? I don't, uh, this is not necessarily the thinking of the committee, but I think it sure works out pretty well for them politically that just as Donald Trump is coming back into the public eye with a series of big speeches about the future of the America First agenda, uh, there's another drop of evidence uh, just like that. And I think that Donald Trump should assume that that's going to continue happening. It's scary, right? You don't necessarily know what's out there. So if you're him, perhaps, or others, by the way, I'm not just focusing on him, there are others that they might have little tidbits, little breadcrumbs that are going to be spread out among whatever trail they want to have. But politically speaking, I'm always wondering this. You know, if the end game is accountability, you know, the, the big umbrella of accountability, I so often have people say, you know, if you prosecute a former president, it's going to really divide the nation. Let's just move on and beyond even knowing the truth. And I wonder... Do you really think that prosecuting or holding accountable in some way, shape, or form somebody who might be engaged in this behavior 
Is that going to divide our nation irrevocably, or is the absence of doing that the problem? I, I'm going to say two things on that, and, and I hope that Alex and Olivia come in and, and hit me at both sides. But uh, <laughs> I, think it's, I think it would be both cathartic for this country and potentially violent. Mm. On the catharsis piece, look, Americans want to know that no one is above the law. And the committee, I think, has already shown that laws were broken here. They've, they've made a damn good case, and they're not even the prosecutors in this. They're not the Justice Department. They're a congressional committee that doesn't have the ability to do this prosecution. But I think they've made a really compel- compelling case here that laws were broken, especially that key law, right, disrupting a proceeding of Congress. So it's cathartic to the American people to know that no one, even a president, is above the law. So that's important. But at the same time, I highlight violence very warily, because whether a Trump, if he is prosecuted and convicted, or a Trump, if he's prosecuted and exonerated, people in the law enforcement community have told me, and I'm sure Olivia, that those situations could both end violently, is that Trump supporters, if uh, convicted, could be out there in the streets conducting acts of violence. And if if he's exonerated, I think you could see riots in this country. So it's definitely a dangerous situation, but not a reason to not go forward with the law. Is that what you're hearing too? Yeah, I think, I, I, to Miles's point, I've had these conversations in national security circles where there is concern that would a prosecution or holding them accountable in that way, would it lead to violence? Would it lead to more the civil war direction that we're heading in that everyone's concerned about in the country? My argument on that is like, aren't we already on the brink of that? We're already kind of there. And, you know, and if you decide that we're going to be a nation that is not going to uphold the rule of law, also, what are we saying internationally to the world? Right? We, what are we saying on the world stage to foreign adversaries and to international partners that the rule of law no longer matters, that, you know, that, that wealth and power actually can undermine the rule of law? Is that the precedent we want to set based on the fact that we fear violence? I mean, we already have violence right now. We're already experiencing that. There's already great concern about political violence regardless in upcoming elections in the future because of how divided we are. And also, a lot of it because of Donald Trump's rhetoric and the emboldening that he's done with these extremist groups. It is to me just uh, a, such a bizarre American perspective that you can't prosecute somebody who used to run your government uh, or the country will fall apart. Happens in other places in the world uh, all the time. They've endor- indicted former presidents and prime ministers in uh, countries like France and Israel and Korea uh, and Brazil. Those countries are still around. I'm not saying it's easy for them, and I'm not saying it'd be uh, easy here, but it is this sort of, I think, legacy of Watergate and the pardon of uh, Richard Nixon, this idea the only way you turn the page is to not hold the person uh, in charge accountable. I think it's a really strange uh, kind of American exceptionalism. Well, speaking of turning the page, um, Vice President Mike Pence was speaking today and he wanted to sort of turn the page. He had an interesting statement about how he and Trump are not so different on the policy front, just on the, on the focus. Here he is. I don't know that the president and I differ on issues. But we may differ on focus. I truly do believe that elections are about the future and that it's absolutely essential at a time when so many Americans are hurting, so many families are struggling, that we don't give way to the temptation to look back. What a very nice way of saying, please stop talking about what happened in the past. I mean, that's what he's going at, right, without saying as many words. But Am I just giving him too much credit? Alex is like, no. They, they, do, they do disagree on the hanging yeah. Mike Pence issue, right? I think that's a place where they, they do not have the same 
uh, agenda. They are not uh, in but, agreement that that should happen. You are correct. That's right. But, but seriously, look, I think one of the challenges here, one of the many challenges here for Mike Pence, yes, is the question of how do you parse your relationship with Donald Trump and your role in the Trump administration. But it's also that if Mike Pence is saying you don't talk about the past, you talk about the future, Mike Pence's past as the vice president is the only reason why he's seen as a serious candidate for president in 2024. He's not an ideological visionary for the party. He's not seen as one of the big ideas people, one of the electrifying, charismatic, Just new guard leaders of the Republican Party. Association with Trump, his role in Congress, and basically a, a, a stalwart member of the party in good standing for a very long time culminating in his service as vice president. If you can't tell a story about that phase of your career and then spinning it forward with a set of new ideas, I think it's awfully hard to compete. I think a lot of people I talk to in Republican politics think it's awfully hard uh, for him to compete with uh, the Ron DeSantis mm. of the world who really do represent uh, a next generation and don't need to untangle you know, what they were doing in the Oval Office at any given uh, date and time. But, Look but, at this new poll, though. Look at this new poll. I want yeah. you guys to see. I want you to comment on this. There's a new poll CNN has with SSRS from back in July, end of July, a couple days ago, actually, where you've got Republican-leaning voters, whether they want the nominee to be Trump or somebody else. And they say um, Donald Trump, 44 percent, and then a different candidate, 55 percent. So, I mean, not a total runaway, but that's pretty significant. These numbers were flipped. A year ago. In fact, they were worse than that. It was something like 75% wanted to see Donald Trump. So that's very significant. A lot of damage has been done to Trump here politically throughout all of this. More and more people want to see a new face. But I also would caution you cannot overstate the stranglehold that Trump's MAGA movement has on the levers that determine who the nominee is. All the way down to the precinct captain level, the MAGA team has been exceptional at infiltrating the Republican Party and taking it over. That does give Donald Trump a built-in advantage, and I don't think you can underestimate him. As far as whether Pence could be competitive, I mean, look, Alex made great points, but if you want to know what the, the Mike Pence vice presidency was like, Mike Pence is a guy with an erect posture and a flaccid conscience, okay? He stood up tall, but he did not stand up to Donald Trump, okay? And, and we just saw it in that clip. He, he stood up tall in the speech, but he still after people trying to assassinate him, could not stand up to Donald Trump and said, we don't disagree on the issues. That tells you everything you need to know about Mike Pence. I'm not mature enough to respond to what you've just said. Thank you so much, (laughs) Olivia Troy, Alex Burns, and Miles Taylor. I really do appreciate it. Thank you so much. And still to come, the fight behind the scenes to preserve a landmark case. We have new CNN reporting on just how hard Chief Justice John Roberts tried, tried to save Roe v. Wade, and what might have actually doomed the effort in the long run. Right now, a CNN exclusive on what happened behind the scenes in the Supreme Court leading up to the landmark decision to overturn Roe v. Wade. Multiple sources telling CNN's Joan Biskupic that Chief Justice Roberts fought hard to preserve the right to abortion, but a potential deal with one of the conservative justices ultimately collapsed. The real question is why, and Joan is here with the inside story. Joan, look, the Chief Justice has been successful in the past trying to cajole and persuade behind the scenes, but with that leaked draft opinion... Things seem to have changed. Is that the moment that there was that inflection point? You know, bottom line, Laura, I wonder if he ever was going to be successful. Mm -hmm. But once it was leaked, then it really eliminated the chance almost to about zero. 
You're exactly right that the chief has been successful in the past. The chief himself has switched his vote at the 11th hour, as we know most memorably in the 2012 Obamacare case. Mm. So he he has been someone who knows that votes switch sometimes. They don't always stay the way as this one did. You know, in December, they voted five conservatives saying we totally want to reverse Roe. Chief Justice John Roberts in the middle saying he wanted to uphold that Mississippi ban on abortions at 16 weeks. And then, of course, the three remaining liberals saying, please leave abortion rights the way they are now. But your your question about his private negotiations where he's seeking, you know, uh, concessions and offering concessions, that all goes on in sometimes just one or two justices that he's dealing with. He doesn't, you know, it's not his most successful moments are dealing in small ways with his colleagues. So who and was it here that he was trying to sort I, of... His best explain. prospect was Brett Kavanaugh. Mm. But he did not uh, rule out Amy Coney Barrett either because both of those are the newest justices. They have, were not as locked in as Clarence Thomas, Sam Alito, and Neil Gorsuch were based on what they had written before. But one thing about Brett Kavanaugh is that he always gives mixed signals mm. on these kinds of things. And he can be ambivalent. And I'm sure he was open to what the chief said, even after he voted the way he did in private to reverse Roe. But you know what? In the very end, he almost always goes with the hardline anti-abortion move, as he did here. But again, the key, I think, was once everything became public on May 2nd, when Politico published that leaked first draft. With his name as one of the people signing on to the majority. Exactly. I mean, it wasn't explicit, but everybody knew that Sam... Uh, Sam Alito thought he had a majority, right. then then the world knows that Brett Kavanaugh has voted a particular way and that Justice Barrett has voted a particular way. It's very hard to go back on that. But one thing I want to say, and this is something you'll, you'll know from the dynamic of these nine, the uh, hard right conservatives were very anxious about what the chief was doing, and they wanted to get the opinion out sooner because they did not want anything to thwart their majority. Now the we're, plot thickens, though, as to yes. why there was a leaked opinion in the well, first exactly, place. Exactly, I know. It sounds very, know. very strategic. I know. It does. I mean, when you back off, of the, back up, it looks completely strategic. Right. I don't know if I believe that for sure, though, because, of course, the Supreme Court is still involved in its investigation, and we're about to hit the three-month mark, and they have not found the culprit or culprits. So I, I also wonder if, if maybe it changed hands a couple times before it got to Politico, because remember that draft was dated February 10th, and they published it in May. But, you know, the new reporting just shows how vigorously they've tried to investigate this, but with no luck. Mm, I mean, just the idea that it dropped, having it out there makes people think, you can't change your mind. There's no opportunity to negotiate and wheel and deal behind the scenes and make concessions because if you now I have to know that I'm changing your mind and the public knows that it's not sort of the behind the scenes private motions. Right, because the times when the chief himself had switched votes, we didn't know that initially. Right. We, it, it had to be ferreted out late, you know, after the fact. Mm. And but in this case, everybody would have known if Brett Kavanaugh suddenly was in the middle as the chief was to uphold the Mississippi law, but not reverse row. And as you know well, they never, when they first took this case, when they said that they were going to hear it, they didn't, they said they were only going to hear it on the question of whether a 15-week ban was unconstitutional. And they went much further. And this is what we have now. Well, as I said, the plot thickens as to who exactly leaked it. And now the why. It seems we might know a little bit more about the why. Joan Biskupic, as always, thank you for your reporting. Great to have you here. 
Up next, we're going to hear from a Texas woman who experienced firsthand what can happen when strict new abortion laws take effect. Now, when her pregnancy suddenly became complicated, that's when her nightmare began. The overturning of Roe doesn't just affect women looking to end unwanted pregnancies. I'm about to introduce you to a woman who had to endure days of medical horror and bureaucracy. Elizabeth Weller was an excited mother-to-be, but her water broke way too early at just 18 weeks. That means the chance of survival for the fetus then plummeted, while Elizabeth's chance of potentially deadly infection, it went way up. Now, at first... Elizabeth and her husband, James, were given two options. Continue the pregnancy, try to get the baby to 24 weeks, and hope for the slight chance of survival, or end the pregnancy. They chose the latter, but the procedure was blocked. Why? Because the Wellers live in Texas, where abortions are illegal if there's a fetal heartbeat. So to get one, Elizabeth had to wait until the fetal heartbeat stopped or until she got so sick that the doctors had to terminate the pregnancy as a medical emergency. The Wellers, they join me now. Thank you for being here today, Elizabeth and James. I'm so sorry to be meeting you under these occasions, and I'm just heartbroken at the choice that you had to make, let alone the treatment that you received. Can you just walk me through, Elizabeth, a little bit about what that was like to know that you had to endure for days, waiting until you were either sick enough or till the heartbeat stopped? Yes, so uh, the mental anguish that followed having to leave the hospital was something that I would never wish on anybody. The following day after having to grapple with the fact that my daughter, who I wanted so badly, was going to die, was just a hell on earth. It was torture having to wake up every day in a home knowing that I wanted to fill that house with my baby girl and the future that we created in our heads of what this house was going to look like, how it was going to feel. And then to be in my home in this sense of doom and broken promises that were created all around me because we had just started to work on her nursery and now having to grapple with the fact that she was going to leave, that that she was not going to make it, walking through our home was kind of like walking through a tomb. It's just devastating for me to hear that. I'm so sorry that that is what you've had to experience. And just the phrase of broken promises and the hopes and what you've gone through, you and your husband, James. Can you talk to me a little bit, James, about, I mean, you're in Texas, Most people think about the overturning of Roe v. Wade and the Dobbs decision as being somebody else's problem, those who have an unwanted pregnancy. As you and your wife are sitting here today, you wanted your daughter. And yet the choices that you had to make were ones dictated oftentimes by the doctors, fearful, it seems, of having to contend with that very decision. What was that like for you as a father? 
we wanted nothing more than to fill that house with children. And there were points during our ordeal where we were looking at flights to Denver or to Albuquerque so that we could stop her from having her life put in jeopardy. And, and now I feel like, although I was born and raised here in Texas, I don't know if I want to start a family in Texas. I, I feel like sometimes my only real option for a family is to sell our house and move to a state where if something were to happen to my wife during pregnancy, her life doesn't have to be put on the line for it. It's, it's amazing to hear that statement. And I want people to understand, Elizabeth, you endured a great deal. You had days of having to wait until you were considered sick enough. That in and of itself, in my mind, just sounds sick to even contemplate, that someone would make you go through that. What was your pain like? What did you have to go through? I want people to understand that this was something that really was horrific for you. So there are two levels to that pain. Um, The first one is mental and the second one is physical. Um, physically, my body was reacting to the cramps and the continued um, exit of amniotic fluid from my body. Um, I was starting to experience nausea just from the amount of stress and pressure that I was going through, having to grapple with the fact that, one, I'm losing my baby, and two, I can't do anything to minimize the suffering that she's enduring inside of me. Because for a lot of people, you have to realize that this is a baby without amniotic fluid. She is being encased in her own sack, and the pressure of my body is on her. So I have to endure the physical pain of, one, my body now starting the process of contractions and starting to, what is in a sense, rejecting a failed um, birth inside of me. And then on top of that, having to grapple with the mental anguish of it all. The There was a, a, a point in time on Friday, the um, day that I was going to get induced, um, before we were, we even knew we were going to be able to get um, an induction happen. And that morning, um, through the pressure and through the mental anguish of it all, I heard a sound of gas in my abdomen. And for me to have heard that sound, it was very high pitch. And to me, in my moment of anguish, I thought that that sound of gas was actually my baby screaming because she was about to die. And even though that's completely irrational and with, you know, with, not within the realm of reality, that was where my mental health was at. And that is the consequences of what these laws that are in action in Texas are doing. It's not just the fact that you're grappling with the pain of having to lose a baby girl that you wanted so badly, but now having to deal with the anguish of knowing that you need a medically necessary procedure and the state of Texas to tell you no. Elizabeth, I'm just so sorry to hear to even for a moment to think what that would have been like and what it continues to be. I want to thank both of you for sharing your story. I know that it's difficult to do. I think it is so brave and speaks to your humanity to really talk about and explain what's so deeply personal because the world needs to hear what you went through. 
thank you to both of you, and I'm very, very sorry for your loss. Thank, thank you. you, Ms. Coates. <sighs> Justice, well, it might have been delayed, but it wasn't denied. A teen convicted after a notorious Central Park attack is, that happened back in 1989 is now exonerated in the year 2022. What's it like to finally, truly be free? One of his co-defendants knows, and he'll join us next. Now, you probably know the case in Central Park Five, or really, as they ought to be called, the Exonerated Five. But you may not know there was actually a sixth teen who was convicted in that case as well. Steven Lopez was his name, and he was only 16 when he told and took a plea deal in the 1989 beating and sexual assault of a female jogger in New York. He served nearly four years in prison as a result of that plea agreement. But while his other five co-defendants were exonerated back in 2002, thanks to DNA evidence, Lopez would not be exonerated until yesterday. He is now 48 years old. My next guest is Raymond Santana. He is one of the exonerated five. Raymond, it's good to see you again, and thank you for joining me here tonight. You know, you have been very vocal about what your experience has been, and it has really been so riveting and helpful to the entire world to hear all of your stories. But many people didn't know about a sixth. Why do you think it's taken so long for Stephen's case to end up like yours did, exonerated? Well, first off, thank you for having me. such an honor to be here tonight. Um, I think with the case of Stephen Lopez, I mean, you know, he was charged and he was set to go to trial like the rest of us. And, you know, I think because he wound up taking a plea agreement, you know, for a robbery case and he wound up serving four years in prison, I think that, um, you know, because of that issue right there of him not going to trial, that he kind of got lost in the source when it came to the story of the Central Park Jaga. He became, you know, the lost defender that nobody really knows about. And then also, you know, when we get to 2002 and we're exonerated and, you know, we filed the civil suit against the city, Stephen Lopez is in a place that, like, he's trying to get his life together and he's trying to put it together. He's doing okay. And I think that for him, it was better, you know, if he just faded to the black because he was trying to start a family. He was trying to move on with his life. And we were just so thick in the middle of things. You know, we had an 11-year battle with the city in this civil suit. And I think for him, it just was too much. Um, and so he didn't want to participate in the beginning. You know, he was just trying to put the pieces together. And he was trying to move on with his life. And I think that's the reason why people didn't really know about Stephen Lopez. I mean, just looking, there's images on the screen right now, Raymond, where we're seeing his eyes. We're watching yes. what is he, how he's reacting. So emotional in that courtroom. And, and what, what strikes me particularly is, as you talk about wanting to move on and wanting to sort of move beyond it, you think about that plea offer. You think about the plea agreement. You think yes. about the choices that a young child, and I'm going to call a teenager a child, what they are grappling with in those moments, thinking about this sort of cost-benefit analysis when their freedom is on the line. Yeah. And you know full well about the way in which one can put their thumb on the scale and change yes. the course of one's life. When you look at his story, that really is reflective of that as well. Yes. Oh, definitely. I mean, here it is. He's a 15-year-old kid at the time. He's, he's, um, he's put in the newspaper as a so-called ringleader. 
Um, and so, you know, he sees two trials where we both in both trials we are convicted, and he's the third trial that's up next. And so he's afraid. And so they offer him a plea agreement, plea agreement, and he takes it. I mean, it's understandable because we know that that's an issue within our political, within our criminal justice system now. That you know, the plea agreement where you know you can sit up and you can lay up in a in a um, in a prison or a detention center for for years. You know, before your your case is finally heard and you really get your day in court. And so for him. It was a process of where they're dragging him. And, you know, when they offer you a plea agreement, he looks at it like a lifeline. And he says, if I go to trial and I lose, I'm getting five to ten years. But this plea agreement for a robbery case gives me one and a half to a four and a half. And so he chose the lesser of the two evils. I mean, but his name is, you know, in those 400 articles within the first two weeks of this case, dissecting the lives of 15 and 14-year-old kids. And Corey, who was 16 at the time, you know, his name is put in there with Wolfpack, Wilding, urban terrorists. So he had to, you know, he had to deal with this ordeal just the same way as we had to. It's, so I'm, I'm so, I'm, I'm really glad that you expressed and talked about the way in which and what order of trials he was in, because you really understand the fear that was culminating yes. and building up. And you know what, Raymond, you and I have talked about this in the past as well, and you, it, mm-hmm. it stuck with me. There may be the exonerated five, now exonerated six, but you yeah. are illustrative of thousands of people, if not more, who found themselves in similar circumstances. Thank you for sharing your story as always. That's it for us tonight. Don Lemon Tonight starts right now. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country. Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.